All right, well, your assignment for this week is to finish in its totality Poetics by Aristotle. You can find it online at Gutenberg.com, I believe. It takes about two hours and 20 minutes to read. And um, we're just going to review it a little bit before you have to read it. So who can, as we get started here, who can remind me of the difference between comedy and tragedy? Comedy and tragedy. Amelia. Comedy goes up, tragedy goes down. That's right. Comedy has an upward trajectory. Tragedy, a downward trajectory. One is positive, the other is negative. What... If I'm gonna, let me name something for you, and you tell me if it's most suited to go into a comedy or a tragedy. Uh, the unexpected death of a child. Tragedy, tragedy obviously. Tragedy. The um, mistaken identity of a twin where they play little pranks on uh, people that can't tell the difference between the two of them. Yeah, that's comedy. Although it could turn into a tragedy. That's right. Can you think of a comedy that ends in tragedy? Marie? Joe Biden Yeah, the election of Joe Biden. That is a comedy that ends in a tragedy. Did you just think of that right there? Yeah, well, that's, that's pretty bad. And unfortunately, that's the case with every presidential election in quite some time. Yeah. Can you think of any actual movies or stories where there, it's a comedy and someone dies? Just at any point in the story. Can you think of a sitcom where one of the characters dies? Someone gets rabies in the office. Does anyone die in the office? Someone gets rabies, but it's not serious. <laughs> yeah. Seinfeld? Does someone die in Seinfeld? But none of the main characters, just just a, a random random people, random characters. Who's one of the main characters' fiancés? One of the main characters' fiancés? That's true. She was poisoned or something like that by li- licking too many stamps. Yeah, the envelopes were too cheap. Yeah, the envelopes were too cheap, and so she licked too many of them and she died. Yeah. So, um, generally speaking, death is not funny. Especially if you have been um, made to identify with the character, and you empathize with the character, and you like the character, and you've enjoyed getting to know the character over, over several seasons or over several hours of reading the story, and then they die. Who loves those kind of movies where one of your favorite characters dies unexpectedly? Ugh, it's a tragedy. So in, in, a, in a comedy like Seinfeld, for example, typically if someone dies, it's not going to be a beloved character that you have... Uh, really come to know and empathize with over a, a period of time. It's going to be a, a random character or maybe even a character that you've been uh, trained to hate um, f- f- from the script. Um, generally, though, um, death isn't funny. Sodomy is not funny. Adultery is not funny. There are certain things that aren't typically in comedies, but they might be in tragedies. But there are some, some stories and some movies and sitcoms and books that are coming out these days, which are a little bit more mind-bending, a little bit more twisting of these categories. You can think of Better Call Saul or Breaking Bad. 
Um, those are what we might think of as dark comedies. They're dark comedies. And there's quite like Pulp Fiction, for example, which is a horrible movie, by the way. Don't watch it. But it, it uses violence and grotesque, gore, bloody violence, like heads being exploded and blood scattering, spattering all over a windshield and people laughing at it um, while eating cheeseburgers. It, it, is, it is mixing up genres and categories. That's something that our world is doing um, quite a bit these days. But it is, it's a bit unnatural. It's a bit unnatural. I can remember recently watching what I thought was a comedy because there was jokes in it. And the actors that were cast are, were comedians. And every single episode, the, the character just falls deeper and darker into a horrible spiral of tragedy. And I'm waiting for the story to turn. Every episode, I'm like, finally, now, he's going to learn his lesson and things are going to turn and be positive at the end. And every episode, my expectations and my desires for a turn never happened. It only got worse and worse and worse. And I felt like every episode, I was like, now he's finally going to become a virtuous person, learn his lesson, save the day. Nope, worse, worse. And it's like they trapped me in this downward spiral of depression and no satisfaction, no you know happy endings. And the reason that how they trapped me is because there was jokes the whole time. You got the impression that this is a comedy and it can't possibly go on, you know, this horrible for the entire time. Uh, but it did. But it did. Why do you think people today, though, are more likely to make dark comedies or silly tragedies than make light of things that are not funny? I mean, there are movies that are supposed to be comedies about human torture. How, why do you think that happens these days? It's because our society has fallen from any objective standard of morality and ethics, right? Mm-hmm. Because our society has rejected Christianity. Um, <clears throat> um, and so our, our categories are mixed up. Any society that can't tell the difference between a boy and a girl is not going to be able to tell the difference between a, a comedy and a tragedy. Make sense? Mm-hmm. Um, but here's the thing. Aristotle... He is one of the first, or the first, at least on record, to give us the categories of comedy and tragedy and to, and to tell us what makes it a comedy, what makes it a tragedy. You know, he gives us the rules, he analyzes it, and, and he writes one of the most important and significant and first books on literary analysis in the history of the world called Poetics. By the way, it's not on poetry, it's on tragedy. There was a section of it on comedy, but that section has been lost to the annals of time, to the sands of time. But we still have the section on tragedy. And he goes through various things like plot and you know, storyline and character development. And, and this is one of the first books of literary analysis that helps us to understand what a story is and how it should go. And he believed you shouldn't have death in a comedy. So he wasn't a Christian either, though. But he believed in these categories. Why is it that Aristotle would believe in these categories? And our society doesn't believe in these categories. The answer is because even though Aristotle wasn't a Christian, he did believe in order. This is very important to understand Aristotle's worldview. He believed in order. He believed in science, for example, human reason. He didn't believe the world was chaotic. He knew the difference between a boy and a girl, for example. He knew the difference between up and down, virtuous 
and evil. Now, his standards weren't precisely the same as the Bible, obviously, but he at least believed in the standards. People today believe in one standard, and that's themselves. They believe that they should question everything except their ability to question. That's the supreme God of modern man. But Aristotle believed there was an order, a rhythm, a, a, a standard to the world. And that's why he believes in comedy and tragedy. And people today don't. Also, Aristotle, as you're going to see as you read this, believed that comedies should make fun of vice. Do you know what vice is, by the way? Virtue and vice. Vice is doing evil, doing unvirtuous things. So he believed that comedies should never have death in them. They should always be positive and tragedies have death in them and tragedies end in everyone dead at the end of the story Romeo and Juliet for example and tragedies shouldn't have a bunch of of jokes and silliness in it right but he also believed that comedies shouldn't make fun of evil but think about the comedies today what sort of things do comedies make fun of today do they make fun of evil or do they make fun of righteousness Righteousness. they make fun of righteousness so our, our society is not only violating the you know the difference between comedies and tragedies that Aristotle taught but our society is violating the the basic principle of a comedy that it should make fun of evil not make fun of virtue what are some of the virtuous things that comedies make fun of today Christians Christians yes devout <laughs> devout Christians that's right any type of virtue virtuous people are oftentimes deconstructed in stories today and and shown to be inner uh, innerly corrupt and um and so very oftentimes comedies today and tragedies deconstruct virtue, deconstruct virtuous men. There's tear down the statues of, of great men and women of the past. That's, that's sort of uh, what movies do today. I'm sorry? Especially men. Especially men, yes. Yes, especially men. But can you think of, and, and by the way, and we'll talk about this later, when you are watching a comedy that's breaking these rules... As a Christian, making fun of virtue, right? And oftentimes glorying in things that are not funny at all, like adultery. Uh, as a Christian, it should trouble you because it's unnatural. And it goes against, it goes against nature, but it also, as Aristotle would say, which we're going to get to, but it goes against the law of God and <clears throat> in in what true justice should look like. But can you think of, to end this little section on a positive note, can you think of a comedy, sitcom, movie, book, whatever, that actually keeps all of Aristotle's rules and we love it year after year and it's fun to watch even more than once and it's just a good time and it's a comedy. It, it makes fun of vice and it has a happy ending and no one really dies, nothing really tragic happens. Benjamin. Full House. Full House. Hmm. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, yeah, I think so. I can't think of anything really tragic happening. Every once in a while, they'll have some uh, tragedy inside of those comedies where, where the, uh, the audience is um, you know, drawn in to, to feel sad that Joey you know, lost his grandmother or whatever. But generally, nothing, nothing tragic happens. And, and they don't make fun of virtue. They, kinda, they celebrate virtue and 
for the most part, for the first part. I, I do wonder why the single guys never get married and become fruitful and multiply, like God yeah. says. But yeah. do they? Yeah. Not Joey, but Not Joey jo- tries. Uh, he never gets married. Okay, I didn't, I didn't, married. okay, okay. No offense to Full House. Jackson, you have another example? Home Alone. Yes, that's the, that's the one I was thinking of. Home Alone. The bad guys are bad. The good guys are good. The bad guys get uh, mocked and humiliated. And all, for all their evil, they just, bad things happen to them. They fall into his traps. And, but, but he's not actually sold into sex slavery or anything. Nothing tragedy, <laughs> tragic happens. His family, his family comes back. You know, they learn their lesson and it's all happy. And uh, no one really dies or anything like that. Although, if those things actually did happen to those burglars, they would be dead. I mean, some of the, some of the things that happen are really uh, pretty painful. Four bricks. From yeah. Four yeah, four bricks, fall, four bricks falling on your head from the fourth story. Yeah, you might be a goner. So, yeah, Home Alone is a classic comedy. And... Uh, <clears throat> And, uh, and it's classic all the way back to the classics, even Aristotle's poetics. So let's talk about Aristotle himself for a bit. <clears throat> he was born in 384 B.C. 384 B.C. About 348 years before Jesus. That's right. Kind of the time of, uh, of Malachi, the prophet Malachi. A little, little later than that. And he was born in Macedonia. Macedonia was the, the kingdom just north of Greece, ruled over in his lifetime by the famous Philip of Macedonia. Philip of Macedonia was the father of whom? Alexander, Alexander the Great. That's right, Alexander the Great. And Philip of Macedon wanted the very best for his young, bright godchild. At least that's what they told him. They, and so he hired Aristotle, the famous student of Plato. Who was Aristotle's teacher? Plato, that's right. And what was the name of Plato's school in English? The Academy. And Aristotle studied the Academy. And he was one of the greatest thinkers and philosophers and teachers of the day. And so Philip of Macedonia hired Aristotle to teach Alexander the Great. This is a very important point in human history because Alexander the Great was not just a conqueror, but he was a culture warrior, spreading <laughs> Greek humanism. And, and you'll continue to learn more and more of what that means. Spreading the idea of Greek um, excellence and a Greek humanism and the Greek uh, visions and goals all over the, the known world had a massive impact. Aristotle's thoughts are spread all over the world by Alexander the Great. <clears throat> so eventually Alexander the Great is promoted to, to king. He is the king of kings and lord of lords, as his mother always taught him. And he, of course, uh, doesn't need a tutor anymore, so... So Aristotle travels to Athens and establishes a school called the Lyceum. The Lyceum. L-Y-C-E-U-M. The Lyceum. Now can anyone put their, put their thinking caps on and tell me why Aristotle wouldn't have been given the, the headmaster position of the academy? Does anyone know? Think about that. He didn't agree with Plato. Yes, because Aristotle and Plato um, were at odds to, to some degree. 
They're at odds in some degree. While Plato focused on the ideals and the uh, potentialities of human reason, Aristotle focused on the particulars of this world, more practical things, That's, which is why he writes a book on tragedies and comedies. Right? You read uh, at least a couple of chapters out of Plato's Republic. It's, it's a, a, a treatise on what is justice. So Plato is sort of has his head in the clouds, while the comedies that are being written by Aristophanes, what's the one that y'all read recently? The Bacchae, and, and in the clouds, those, that's making fun of people like Plato. And so Aristotle, you know, he's just not really uh, on board with the, with the same uh, focus that Plato has. And so he starts his own school, the Lyceum. And the Lyceum, over in Athens, uh, and you can actually go to its uh, kind of roughly to where it was today, had an indoor library, you know, study rooms and various things. But what it's most famous for was an orchard of trees that the students would walk around for class. So instead of sitting in um, classes, which would have been more like Plato's Academy, they walked through the trees, you know, enjoying nature and having discussions. Aristotle asking questions and dialoguing. And, and, and they're called the peripatetics, meaning those who walk around. That's, so if you were to walk down the road during the middle of the day, you'd see all these little philosophers and, and rich kids, students, um, walking through the orchard and having discussions with their, their great master Aristotle in his long flowing robes, his big togas peripatetics. And when you read the Poetics, the book that you're about to read on, on the nature of tragedy, you're going you're gonna to see that it's kind of like a discussion that people would have walking around trees. It's, it's not exactly, it's not very organized. It's a little more conversational. It's, it's probably compiled from the students' notes. It's probably where it comes from. Um, as, as they discuss and talked about various things. Now, eventually, Aristotle had to flee the city of Athens because the city of Athens, like many democracies, every once in a while gave way to mob violence and, and uh, emotional outbursts. And Aristotle was accused of not being traditional enough, not being a minister of the status quo and worshiping and honoring the gods and so he didn't want to pull a Socrates and stay there and die with honor. So he fled the city of Athens and he uh, died about a year later. That's Aristotle, the author of Poetics. So, but why are we reading this? Why is this so important? What is the significance of Poetics? This is our next section. And we'll start this section by asking, how is it that the first book we have in human existence, the first extant work, of literary criticism or literary analysis can be one of the most powerful, one of the most important works of literary analysis in the history of the world. Why is it that directors such as Stanley Kubrick or somebody like that, they've all read the poetics? Producers and directors and story writers and authors, Indy Wilson, for example, who's the author of what great book? Hundred cupboards, for example. He's read the poetics. He knows it backwards and forwards. Why is it that people, even still today, are studying this, this over 2,300-year-old book 
And it's the very first one we have. How is it that we have nothing on literary analysis and literary criticism, and then all of a sudden, bang, out of the classical age of Athens, we have one of the greatest <coughs> works of all times. In fact, some people would argue that everything that anyone writes about literary criticism still is just kind of like connected to Aristotle and the poetics. Where does it come from? How did it just burst onto the scene? Like it, it doesn't seem to evolve. Like you don't have like literary analysis written by cavemen and then literary analysis written by three-year-olds and then literary analysis written by like a junior high student. It's like the first one we have is like the greatest of all times. Isn't that interesting? Any theories on how that could be? No, I don't really know how it is, honestly. I don't mean I have some theories. But it's interesting. Some of the first tragedies and comedies written were not um, surpassed in their excellence until William Shakespeare, until Christendom in uh, the English Empire. Some of the works of philosophy written by Plato and Aristotle are, are not surpassed in brilliance until you get to many years later under the philosophers of Christendom, like Augustine or Ambrose. I mean, how is it that the first works on moral philosophy, the first works on literary criticism and analysis, the first tragedies, the first comedies, the first epic poems are bang, Homer writes this, the uh, Iliad, and it's like, wow, it's a masterpiece. It's still a masterpiece. People still study it today. You know, one thing I think it shows is that humans aren't getting smarter. You know, we're, we're not so much evolving as we might be devolving, or at least there might be some cycle of evolution and devolution as far as our brains go, right? They weren't dumb. These are incredibly smart people. What else? What do you think, Marie? Yeah, well, that's, a, that's, you should, you need to work that into your theory of where all this came from. My theory of where this all came from is that there were philosophers and literary critics and poets from the very beginning. And I think there's some evidence for that in scripture. Someone wrote the book of Job, for example, and scripture talks about the invention of various instruments right, and polyphonic music. You, you read some of that in scriptures. And I think that simply we don't have some of the more ancient writings and works of art. And it's also possible that many traditions were oral. Especially when all you have is cuneiform and you're writing with a wedge on clay tablets. You know, it might be a little bit more difficult to tell stories writing them on clay. We do have the Epic of Gilgamesh, or parts of it at least. But um, I bet more than likely there were bards and storytellers and, and you have these, this philosophy and, and whatnot in ancient Egypt, in the ancient Indus River Valley under the Indian uh, empires, and you have it with the Hebrews, obviously, which impacted all of that. We know, for one, we know, for example, that Plato studied in Egypt and many people theorize that he studied Moses in Egypt. Same thing with Aristotle. He studied in various other parts of the world. And I think they gathered, I think they just gathered um, bits and pieces from earlier, more ancient cultures. And we just don't have a record of them anymore. But it is interesting that one of the oldest, or actually the oldest and the first work on literary criticism is still um, a great work even to this day. All right, let's get into the worldview of Aristotle. Which is the most important thing I want you to learn today. Um, Aristotle was not a Christian, but he did believe in order. 
natural order, natural law, and reason. And in fact, the, the teachings of Aristotle have had, next to the Bible, some of the greatest impact on Western civilization from any other literary source. And the reason is because in the early Middle Ages, the works of Aristotle were translated into Latin. And Christian scholars got a hold of them. And the most famous of the Christian scholars that got a hold of Aristotle's teachings was Thomas Aquinas. I'm going to write that on the board for you. Thomas Aquinas. And Thomas Aquinas, he adopts Aristotle's arguments for God. So, for example, if we were to play pool in here, billiards, y'all played pool before? And you saw a ball flying across the table. You could see it with your own eyes. You could make certain deductions with your own human reason. And those, uh, that experiment, for example, of the cue ball smashing into the eight ball and the eight ball going into the corner pocket you could uh, do over and over again, right? Now, what Aristotle would say is we look out of the world and we see things moving. We see energy and we see mass. We see events taking place in time. And therefore, we must reason based on our observations that each effect has a cause. And that cause has a cause, and that cause has a cause. That makes sense, right? It's good human reason that there has to be something that set all of this in motion. You can see that from a pool table. Who was it that was holding the, the stick and hit the, the cue ball that started all of this whole world? That was Aristotle's, one of Aristotle's philosophical arguments for the existence of a God. Well, Thomas Aquinas takes that. Blends that in with the biblical arguments, right? It's called the argument of first cause. You need to know that. But does the Bible reveal a God who is simply a first cause? No. The Bible it reveals a God who is also personal. He's not just a, a force or an initial energy. He's personal. But Thomas Aquinas would take these various arguments, blend them with the Bible... And, and, and writes, and his writings had a massive impact on the, on the medieval world. He also said the, that if you see something that is designed, we see this laptop here. If I'm walking in a field and I came across a Rolex watch, what would I deduce? That, that someone had to have designed it. I wouldn't think, I wonder how many years it took for that to evolve. Right? I would think, who dropped this here? Because the design of it has a purpose. The word is it has a telos. And so if something has a design, well, then there must be a designer. That's an argument called final cause. So you have a, the argument of first cause and the argument of final cause. Those are two rational, rationalistic arguments for the existence of a God. But you can't necessarily go from those rational arguments to the Trinitarian God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Can those things be discovered by human reason? 
No, they have to be revealed to us. And Thomas Aquinas basically attempts to synthesize Aristotle's philosophies with the Bible. And you call that, I'm going to write it on the, on the board, Thomism, basically. Thomism. So as it comes to morality, yes, question? Can you repeat the definition of first cause? First cause is if because things have movement and there is effects, there must be a cause. Every cause has an effect. So if there, you see an effect, there must be a cause, and that cause must have a cause. Now, in the area of virtue and vice, Aristotle believed in virtue and vice. Remember, he said that comedy should make fun of vice, not virtue. But where does he get the idea of virtue and vice. Where is he getting his morality? Where is he getting his ethical standards? It's not from the Bible. Where is it from? His own mind. That's right, from human reason. And he would reason such, and Thomas Aquinas would borrow certain reasonings, that because, for example, sex is for procreation, and, and the, a child should have a mom and a dad, therefore, sex outside of marriage is wrong. That's vice. So that would be like a reasonable, pragmatic argument. Right, and you, we could do that with a lot of things. I mean, you know, why should you obey your parents? Give me some practical, pragmatic, reasonable arguments that you could come up with on your own, and you don't need to have the Bible to know. Benjamin, because I'll be black and blue if I don't. Because they might, <laughs> there might be uh, physical punishments involved. Yes. So for self-preservation, that's practical. Yes, You'll Lucas. Get more uh, like responsibility and more privileges. Yeah, it will, you can get more privileges because they hold the purse strings. They set the amount of allowance. See, that's very practical and very pragmatic, but what we learn in the Bible is that ultimately we obey our parents because God has given them to us for our own good and for His glory. Right? <clears throat> Etc. And you can't, you can't get to that from human reason. You can't get to a full understanding of ethics or morality Without the Bible. But, um, but Thomas Aquinas and Aristotle did believe they had some faith in humanity's ability to discover a moral standard. And the moral standard that humans collectively can come together and discover is called natural law. You need to know that's a term. Natural law. By the examination of nature, human reason, and observation, experimentation etc., 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 we can agree upon and conclude what is right and what is wrong, and what is good and what is bad, what is beautiful and what is ugly. Now, in, in Protestantism or in the Reformed tradition under Martin Luther, they would push back on Thomism and say, no, with human reason and human observation, we do not have the ability to, to determine what is right and what is wrong. We must submit to the Bible. Uh, Martin Luther called Aristotle a many-headed serpent. That's right, which is like a little nickname for the devil. And he, he insisted that the Christian church should have nothing to do with this Greek philosopher. Very interesting. 
And uh, what he was basically saying is what Thomas Aquinas has done, synthesizing Aristotle's philosophy with the Bible, is create a false religion. And Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and other reformers wanted to pull the Bible away from the teachings of Aristotle and create an antithesis between the two. And, but, and this is what's interesting, uh, Luther did say we should keep the books like on rhetoric and on poetics by Aristotle because they have a lot of common sense value. But he was basically saying we can't use human reason observation to determine the laws of God and the nature of God. We need to trust in the Bible alone. Scripture, scripture alone is our ultimate source of authority, not Scripture and human reason, which is what I believe Thomism teaches. And even still to this very day, that is a battle going on in the church today. Is God's law supreme? Is the Bible our source of ethical standards for every area of life? Or is it human reason and tradition and experience blended with the Bible, which should be our authority? Make sense? And we here at Christ Church, of course, do not believe, we reject Thomism and believe that it should be all of the scriptures for all of life. All of Christ and all of life is basically another way of saying we're against Thomism. We're against that particular concept of synthesizing Greek philosophy with scripture. Would you nod your heads if y'all understand a little bit of what we're saying? All right. Um, So for example, when you read Poetics, you're going to see that Aristotle does believe in virtue, and he naturally concludes and, and, uh, and appreciates certain virtues like justice and uh, self-control. They believed in those sorts of things. You want to eat in moderation. Okay, that makes sense. Can you give me a pragmatic or practical reason for why you might eat in moderation? Benjamin. Uh, so you don't become a obese? Yeah, because it's better for your health. Anyone could reason that, right? But can you see the true um, purpose for self-control and eating to the glory of God? The Bible says whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. The Bible says your body is a, a temple of the Holy Spirit, that health is one of the covenantal blessings of prosperity that God wants for you to have and therefore you should have. Can you come up with all these things in your brain? No, we know these things because the Bible tells them to us. So while you're going to see Aristotle does have natural law, he comes up with some natural things, he's not going to have much about mercy or love or self-sacrificing even for your own enemies. You're not going to see things like that. You're certainly not going to see love or faith, hope, and love. The faith that he has is faith in his own reason and in the power of man. And the hope that he has is in a future that man can establish. And the love that he has is for himself. So though he does believe in virtue, it never rises to the standard of Christian virtue. And you're going to read that in the, uh, in the Poetics. You're going to see that he praises revenge. And that makes sense in a practical society, in an honor society. You diss me, I diss you back. But the scripture tells us to pray for those who persecute us. No man would ever reason that himself. But it has to be believed because it comes to us from, uh, from the Bible. So that's the, that's the uh, worldview of Aristotle and how it eventually bled into what we think of today as Thomism. And uh, just to close, can anyone think of the religion that is essentially Thomistic and comes from Thomas Aquinas' synthesizing of Aristotle with the Bible? 
It is rationalistic, but that's not the religious name for a massive global organization that began in Latin using Aristotle and Aquinas. The Roman Catholic Church, that's right. That's right. All right, that's it for today.